welcome to City Breaks Bath, Episode 9, Parks and Walks. Drawing together all the lovely outdoorsy things there are to do in and around the city of Bath. A lot of the material I've covered so far has been quite indoor-based, taking tea, conversation, balls, Georgian architecture, all that sort of thing. But it mustn't be forgotten that Bath is a very nice city in which to walk. Indeed, walking, or parading as they called it, was very much one of the 18th century pastimes. North Parade and South Parade were built expressly for that purpose, so that people could walk up and down, see who else was there, and be seen themselves. Bath's situation, being surrounded by hills on all sides, means that there are lots of walks where you can go up and out of the city and get lovely views either further out again or back down into the city. Both equally lovely. We know, for example, that Jane Austen enjoyed walks in the surrounding countryside. So all of that I'm going to cover today. Basic plan for the episode, I'm going to talk about the parade and the parade gardens first, then one or two other parks in Bath, and then I've got a range of four or five ideas for walks, a couple round the city centre that you can do yourself, and others taking you out, and in some cases up and out, to enjoy the pleasures a little further afield. So let's start with the parades then. I found some quite interesting diary entries by 18th century writers, which actually conflicted rather. Some were very keen on walks in Bath, others thought it was all a bit of a waste of time. So I picked two to read out as a contrast to each other. The first one is a visitor, not quite sure where he's from. He's obviously familiar with London as well, but he arrives in Bath and is amazed to find that there are pavements and tarmacked roads or at least small sections of same, and that you can walk about without getting muddy. This seemed to be quite a surprise to him, and definitely an advantage, because it meant that you could walk about and enjoy yourself. OK, so this is what he wrote. There is one thing that I can't pass over, which is the handsome manner of their paving the public walks. You may walk from the end of the parade quite to the pump room, on a fine pavement, so that, let it be ever so wet, the walk is not dirty. Indeed, the pitching in the streets here is better than in most places of the kingdom and far preferable to the metropolis. So, really quite impressed. I have to say that that walk he mentions all the way from the parade to the pump room is five minutes max. So that was a writer who thought that walking up and down in Bath was very much an enjoyable thing to do. Some people found that idea really rather dull. Here's one William Jaynes writing a letter to Viscount Althorpe in 1777, explaining how he liked to get out of town, away from, and it's a wonderful list, the things he wanted to escape from were, quote, balls and concerts and breakfasts and the Duke of Cumberland. While imagining that balls and concerts and breakfasts might constitute an endless round from which you would wish to escape sometimes, I would love to know why it was he particularly wanted to get away from the Duke of Cumberland. Anyway, rather than doing that, he thought it was much preferable to go walking in the hills and valleys outside the city, seeing what he described as, quote, pleasant scenes unknown to those who amuse themselves with walking backwards and forwards on the parades. Those last few words really rather dismissive for these people who had nothing better to do. Ah well, each to their own. So, as we're at the parade, let's think about parade gardens first. If you remember, in a previous episode, I think I said that one of the assembly rooms in Bath, the lower assembly rooms, were down in this area of the city. 
So that was a meeting place where people would go to take a little leisure and to see who else was around. And it was soon decided that actually building something outside, somewhere for people to take leisurely walks so that they could see and be seen, would be a good idea. That was where the idea for Parade Gardens came from. Rather handily, there was some land down there that wasn't being used for much. Historically, it had belonged to the Abbey, it had been an orchard, but it wasn't really being used for much anymore, and so it was an obvious place on which to create the gardens. Parade Gardens was thus born, designed very much as a pleasure garden, so with a summer house, with riverside walks, even, I believe, with a little cafe, and certainly with lovely views over the river and up into the hills beyond the city. It's still there today, still a pleasure garden. In fact, you have to pay a small entry to get in, so refined is it. But that's rather nice, really, because it means that only people who really want to spend time there go in. And if you go down, you have to climb down some steps to get to it. You'll find lawns and flower beds, sculptures. There's one of Bladud, for example. There's a sundial. In summer, there's a little cafe. There's a bandstand, sometimes even a brass band playing. So it's a very English way to spend a couple of hours. Just relaxing, enjoying the scenery. You get lovely views of Pulteney Bridge, for example, from there. And you're in the absolute heart of the city, but it's very quiet and peaceful. The other gardens with a lot of historical depth to them are Sydney Gardens. So there, if you start at the bridge and walk along through Laura Place and along Great Pulteney Street, you'll get to Sydney Gardens at the end of that road. And they were opened in 1795. I think originally they were called the Spring Gardens. And when they opened, they were the largest pleasure garden anywhere in England outside London. They had a pavilion. That's the building which is actually now the Holborn Museum. And they were carefully designed to be just a lovely place to wander and sit and meet your friends and relax. The New Bath Guide, printed in 1801, described it as follows. 16 acres, interspersed with a great number of small, delightful groves, pleasant vistas and other charming lawns, intersected by serpentine walks, which at every turn meet with shady bowers, furnished with handsome seats, some composed by nature, others by art. It is decorated by waterfalls, stone and thatched pavilions, alcoves, the Kennet and Avon Canal running through. And actually that's not a bad description of what you'll find even today. Certainly the twisty paths, the lovely little lawns and trees, the seats, the bridge over the canal, the little waterfall, all still there. All so lovely and peaceful that it's quite easy to forget that it was designed actually as a commercial enterprise, somewhere where an entry fee would be charged. That's no longer the case, you can just wander in. But in the 18th century, you had to pay because when you arrived, there would be entertainment. Public breakfasts were held there, evening promenades, gala nights with music and lights and fireworks. We know that the pavilion, so the building which is now the Holborn Museum, was used as a venue for breakfasts. And I found a wonderful description of one of these in an equally wonderful book called Voices of Bath, an anthology edited by Trevor Fawcett which is absolutely chock full of letters and diary entries and newspaper reports from the 18th century in Bath. It is an absolutely fascinating read, one that I can't over-recommend. And by way of example, here is an extract from a letter penned in 1766 
by somebody who had been to the pavilion in the gardens for breakfast. Quote, we this morning were most elegantly regaled with a breakfast at Spring Gardens. In these gardens is a large handsome building wherein is a breakfast room capacious enough to hold many sets of company. When we entered the room, the tables were spread with singular neatness. Upon a cloth white as snow were ranged coffee cups, tea dishes of different sizes, chocolate cups, teapots, and everything belonging to the equipage of the tea table, with French rolls, pots of butter, all in decent order, and interspersed with sweet briar, which had a pretty effect both on the sight and the smell. At the word of command was set on the table chocolate, coffee, tea, hot rolls buttered, buttered hot cakes. What should hinder one from making a good breakfast? Yet I was so moderate and had such a philosophical command of my appetite that in the midst of all this plenty I ate but one roll and one cake and drank but one cup of chocolate, two of coffee and two of tea. We know from Jane Austen's letters that she too had breakfast in that very establishment. So that was one of the things you could do at Sydney Gardens. But you could also meet other people, go walking, go bowling, use the swings, admire the various decorations. We know that later on, I think probably in the 19th century, something called a Merlin mechanical swing was put up. For sixpence you could have a ride, although if it was a Sunday you weren't allowed to. Swinging was not permitted on Sundays. So, as you wander around today, it's nice to imagine all those things. And just to give you one last thing to think about, here's a description also from the Voices of Bath, this time an excerpt from a Bath newspaper called the Bath Chronicle, still going today, I believe. This particular item was published on the 10th of June, 1790, and is a description of a gala night held here in Sydney Gardens on a special evening, namely the birthday of the king, George III. So, this is what they wrote. Friday being the anniversary of His Majesty's birthday, in the evening there was an excellent concert of music and a superb display of fireworks, which were brilliantly illuminated on the occasion and were honoured with the presence of about 2,000 persons, among whom were most of the principal gentry of the city and the neighbourhood. So, Sydney Gardens, do not miss. Another park which it's very nice to visit is on the other side of the city, Victoria Park. Much, much bigger, 53 acres in fact, laid out in 1830 and opened by the 11-year-old Princess Victoria. Another first for Bath, this was the first park anywhere outside London to carry her name. Although in fact it's said that she didn't like Bath at all, she came to open the park She's said to have heard someone commenting that her ankles were rather thick, which put her in not the best of moods, and she said she would never come back to Bath, and she never did. Anyway, if you go to Victoria Park today, lots of wandering to do, lots of little things to see, botanical gardens, a duck lake, bandstand, sometimes in use, an absolutely enormous play area. If you have sort of 7 to 12 year olds, I'd say it's the place to spend a morning or an afternoon want to let off some steam. Perhaps the highlight is the botanical gardens, which were laid out in 1887 and today have 50,000 different sorts of plants and rare trees. Lots of things to look at, a scented walk, a magnolia lawn, a temple of Minerva. So another reference to Bath's ancient history. This temple was built for the 
British Empire exhibition in 1924, and then when that was all done and everything had been dismantled, it was brought back to Bath and recited here in the park. At the entrance to the park, you'll find an obelisk erected for Queen Victoria's coming of age. So when she was 18, i.e. about seven years after she had declared she was never coming back, perhaps at that stage they were still hoping she would change her mind. So both of those parks, lovely places to wind down, spend a little downtime away from the bustle of the city centre. Moving on to the idea of walks, I've got a couple of suggestions for walks that you can do yourself if you've got a map. Little round circuits that won't take very long, but will allow you to see some of the loveliest parts of the city. One thing it's very nice to do, actually, is a walk from Pulteney Bridge. If you cross over the bridge from the main part of town, just before you get to the other side, if you're walking along the right-hand side with the main part of the city behind you, you will see some stone steps leading down to the river. And if you go down there, you'll be on a little path where you can walk along the river, perhaps as far as the next bridge, up, over that and back. So on your way back, you'll be walking along Grand Parade with lovely views of Pulteney Bridge and the Weir. That being one of the absolute classic photos of Bath. A must-take, really. Pause a moment to just mention Pulteney Bridge, which, along with the Roman Baths and the Abbey, is one of the iconic sites of Bath, and rightly so. It's absolutely beautiful. Designed in 1789, it's said to have been based on the design for the Ponte di Rialto, no less, in Venice. And it's one of those very few bridges in the world on which there is a parade of shops along both sides. That makes it unusual. It's also very beautiful, a classic Palladian-style bridge with three arches, all in stone, of course, and looking down over the river and over the weir. It always was somewhere to go for pleasure, wander along both sides, pop in and out of the little shops, often selling jewellery or something nice to eat, or little souvenirs, a real day-out territory. An idea very much summed up in an article from the Bath Chronicle, dated the 6th of January, 1774, about the opening of Benjamin Ford's new ice cream shop at number 13, Pulteney Bridge. Here, it says, quote, may be had all kinds of different flavoured ices made from the best sweetmeats, essences and fruits for plates, compote bowls and all large glasses from curious shaped moulds of pints, quarts or upwards on very short notice. Lemonade and jellies at three shillings and sixpence per dozen made new every day as will be almond, lemon and diet bread cakes of a pound each, thick plum, saffron and royal queen cake to cut out in small quantities, Italian and all sorts of fine biscuits, sweetmeats and confectionery, ice cream of all kinds in small glasses at fourpence each. I'm afraid that Benjamin Ford's is no longer there, but other nice little shops are. If you want to lengthen that walk around Pulteney Bridge, then a good thing to do is... Start on the side away from the city, walk just a few yards and you'll find yourself in Laura Place with Great Pulteney Street stretching ahead of you. A wide, imposing street with the Holborn Museum at the end, all quite a sight. You can walk down there, turn left at the end along Henrietta Gardens, through Henrietta Park, left into Henrietta Street and back to Laura Place. So just a little round circuit which allows you to see one of the loveliest areas in Bath. The area was built by Sir William Pulteney. He named the bridge after himself. 
He named Great Pulteney Street, obviously, after himself, and he named several other places there after his daughter, Henrietta Laura. You can see a portrait of her if you go into the Holborn Museum, where they have one dated 1777, said to be of her at about 11, although I thought she looked older, wearing an embroidered muslin dress and a little lace cap and carrying a basket of flowers. Anyway, William Pulteney. I'm afraid we know that he was a plantation owner. He had lands in Tobago and Dominica. So, if it hasn't been done already, there's certainly research needed on exactly what he did, how he made his money, how he treated the people who worked for him. Actually, as an aside, it's interesting to note that the abolitionists, William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore, both lived in Bath. So I imagine these things must have been under discussion at some level. It is, I suppose, quite amusing to note that when you walk down Great Pulteney Street, which is itself very magnificent, approximately a 100 feet wide and a 1,000 feet long, a long straight road with these very imposing Georgian buildings on each side and the Holborn Museum at the end with its classical pillars. You walk down there, but look at the streets going off to right and left and see how short some of them are. Something like William Street or Sunderland Street is practically doesn't exist, just been started. And the reason for that is the money ran out. Anyway, so those are a couple of nice little walks you can do down by the river or down by the bridge. For a different part of Bath, it's quite easy to take yourself on a walk starting in Queen Square, as long as you've got a map. If you leave Queen Square, which of course is already one of the best examples of Georgian architecture, leave that road by Gay Street, that will lead you up to the Circus, where you can turn left into Brock Street, which will lead you to the Royal Crescent. So already a circuit taking in all three of the big hitters, Queen Square, the Circus, the Royal Crescent. If you walk along the Royal Crescent, you could prolong your walk by going, I think it's left out of the entrance and first right, into Victoria Park. Or using a map, you could loop back, find Margaret's Buildings and Circus Mews, and do a little route that will take you past the Assembly Rooms and down Milsom Street, where certainly Jane Austen's characters, possibly even Jane herself, did their shopping. I don't think she was a great shopper, but we do know that she occasionally had a new dress or a new bonnet or a new trim for an item of clothing. So I imagine even she must have been out to Milsom Street sometimes and been to the drapers or the haberdashers. Of course, there are lots of possibilities for going on a walk with a guide, organised perhaps at the tourist office. But if you want to do your own thing, that certainly does seem to be the sort of walk that's very easy to navigate. But it's also interesting to note that there are lots of lovely walks outside the city. We know, for example, that in Jane Austen's day, there was a whole network of highways and footpaths leading out of the city to pretty little villages or to places from which you'd get a nice view. The painter Gainsborough worked from up there, for example. There's a nice summary written by the editor of Voices in Bath to introduce the section on walks and exercise in and around the city, in which he says the following, quote, in fine weather, the ways about Bath were thronged with excursionists on horseback, in carriages and on foot. Nearby hamlets and villages, local beauty spots, rural tea gardens, country houses, Prior Park the closest, and places of interest such as Twerton Lock, Wicksteed's Machine, a water-powered seal engraving device, or the Grenville Monument on Lansdowne, all made convenient destinations. So, a few ideas for walks you could do then. 
an easy one starts in Sydney Gardens along the canal. If you point yourself in the direction of Bradford-on-Avon, you could actually walk all the way to Bradford, which would be about 10 miles, certainly on the list of things to do of Bath residents, as is a related idea, which is much shorter. And that's on the same path, if you go in the same direction towards Bradford for about a mile and a half, you will come to the George Pub. And if you time your arrival for opening hours, that will work splendidly because it's a lovely beamed West Country pub serving all the ales you could want and plenty of good grub too. So a wander out there, a stop off at the pub and a wander back would very nicely fill two or three hours. As an aside, if you do that, you're walking along the Kennet and Avon Canal, so-called because it connects the River Avon at Bath to the River Kennet at Newbury. 86 miles in total, 105 locks, and really useful because it was a key trade link from Bristol to London, operating all through the 19th century, but closed eventually in 1951, when it was decided that really the railways were now so good and so efficient and so fast that you didn't need canals. Fortunately for us, it was reopened by volunteers in 1990, and it's become a key place for people to walk. Another idea is something called the Two Tunnels Walk, which is actually part of the National Cycle Network, so obviously suitable for bikes too. And that's a route around the edge of Bath, about 13 miles long, which takes you through two disused railway tunnels and over a viaduct and through a lot of lovely countryside. You can get a map for that from the tourist office. I think you can download one, actually, if you just Google Two Tunnels Walk in Bath. I think you'll find it. So if you need a quiet day between all the sightseeing, there's an idea. But there is another walk outside Bath, which is perhaps better known, a bit shorter, and certainly generally very splendid, and that is the Bath Skyline Walk. You can Google that too. They've got their own website. And on there, they describe the walk as being about six miles long. It's going to take you, they say, three and a half to four hours, and it's described as being of moderate difficulty. It's a circular route. It starts and ends in Bath itself, but it takes you up into the surrounding hills and round the outside of the city. So you're going to get some marvellous views in all directions. I got hold of a guidebook for same, in which it described the route as being, quote, through fields and woodlands and over the sites of ancient settlements and quarries that once delivered Bath stone to the city. If you start by climbing out of Bath up Bathwick Hill, you'll arrive at something called Sham Castle, a Grade 2 listed, I hesitate to call it a building, I think it's known as a folly, so built not really to be any use to anyone, but just for the pure pleasure of having it. So it is a castle, or it looks like one, it's got battlements and a fancy entrance and everything, but in fact, as you get closer, you will realise it is entirely two-dimensional. There's just that entrance wall there and nothing behind it, hence the name Sham Castle. What else will you get if you follow the Bath Skyline route? Lovely views of Salisbury Hill, which you may know from a Peter Gabriel song. Um, You'll go across various downs outside the city, including Clabberton Down, which is up where Bath University is these days, but is in fact land that was in medieval times a deer park. You'll go past one of the fancy manor houses built outside the city. This one's called Clabberton Manor. I think it's on land which was originally owned by Ralph Allen, but it's been sold and nowadays Claverton Manor has been renamed and it is known as the American Museum in Britain. It's all very lovely and peaceful up there, but in fact 
please be aware that in the 18th century, Claverton Down was known as a good place to go if you were going to take part in a duel. Here's a description of one such fight, described as a fierce duel, which took place in November 1778, and the description comes from the guidebook to the Bath Skyline Walk. So this duel was, quote, contested between Irishman Count Rice and the Viscount Dubarry, the husband of Madame Dubarry, Louis XIV of France's mistress. Following a dispute over a game of cards, the men took to the hills, along with a coach and their seconds, each armed with a brace of pistols and sword. The Viscount's opening shot hit Rice in the thigh. The Count retaliated with the shot to Dubarry's chest. Although the duel continued for a little time after, it was this shot that proved to be the fatal blow. Dubarry asked to be spared, and moments after Rice acquiesced, the Viscount died. His body remained on Claverton Down until the following day, and is now buried in St Nicholas Church, Bathampton. Rice was sentenced for murder, but, perhaps due to his good standing and contacts in Bath, was acquitted, and the verdict of manslaughter was given. Claverton Down was also apparently a place where lots of highway robberies took place. So yes, it's lovely and quiet and peaceful up there these days, but do remember all these exciting things from the past as you walk through the fields. Moving on round the circuit, you'll go past Prior Park, another 18th century mansion. This one was built in the 1730s for Ralph Allen. He'd made all that money from his quarries. He was friends with the architect John Wood. They'd worked together on some of the city's grandest architectural projects like Queen Square and the Royal Circus. And now Ralph Allen asked his friend to design him a house. And this here, Prior Park, was the result. They both agreed that really what they wanted was a house, quote, to see all Bath and be seen by all Bath. Unfortunately, you can't visit it today because it's in private ownership. In fact, it's a school, Prior Park School. But you can catch glimpses of both the house and the grounds. And it helps to know that when it was built, it had a beautiful landscaped garden, complete with grotto and river, with a sham bridge, a gothic temple, and, wait for it, a pineapple house. Pineapples being the absolute height of exotica in the 18th century. Presumably Ralph Allen or one of his gardeners attempted to grow them right here. Who knows if they succeeded? You'll certainly get an idea of how grand the house and the estate looked, with its driveways specially rooted to make the most of the views. Really quite a sight. And we're lucky that we do have an extract from the Diary of Francis Kilvert, written in 1874, so a long time after the house was actually built. And I think actually possibly not lived in at the time that he was passing. But anyway, it does give us a description of the splendour of it. So he wrote, quote, We came round to the garden front and the great portico looking over Bath, the shrubbery overgrown with long neglect. Upon the great stone balustrades of the wide terrace stairs sat four peacocks, one a white bird, a huge white swan, lumbered, waddling along a grass-grown gravel path, on his way down to the lakes in the hollow of the park. And a little bit later on, the following sentence. Splendid terraces with balustrades of carved stone and broad shallow flights of stone steps descended from the great portico to the lawns and gardens and the distant lakes gleaming misty in the wooded hollow. So the Bath Skyline Walk is definitely a walk on which you'll see all sorts of interesting things and get a sense of the area in which the city of Bath is set.
So that's more or less it for today. I hope I've given you a sense of Bath being a city where it's lovely to wander and linger, whether that's up some of the loveliest roads, whether it's through the parks and gardens, or whether it's on country rambles outside the city. You surely can find something for all tastes, all ages, and all levels of fitness. In next week's episode, I'm planning to go urban again and do something on the theatre in Bath, have a look at the history of the building that's actually there now, the country's first theatre royal outside London, no less, and a place where lots of interesting things have happened. I'm going to talk about the theatre royal's predecessor as well, and some of the plays that were put on there, and generally give you an introduction to an aspect of the city that has been important for centuries. I hope that you'll be able to join me for that, and for the meanwhile, I'd just like to wish you a splendid and relaxing week until it's time for the next City Breaks episode. Thank you very much for listening, and for the moment, goodbye.